the Eskimos were really the happiest people I've ever met. Um, they're always laughing and telling jokes and smiling, and it's not about belongings, it's about belonging. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm talking with Judy Wicks. Judy is the founder of the White Dog Cafe, a restaurant in University City that she started in the first floor of her house in 1983. What started as a muffin shop quickly grew into a renowned 200-seat restaurant that was among the first to feature farm-to-table local food. In this episode, Judy will share how, before starting White Dog, she and her then-husband opened Free People, a general store specifically for people under 30. We really didn't know much except what we wanted to buy, so we bought all those things, and we were the same age as the college students, and that's what they wanted to buy, so it made sense. The store would find quick success, but as a woman, she wasn't being taken seriously, so she left the business and her marriage and literally crashed the restaurant industry. Uh, There was a man walking down the sidewalk, and he said, oh, may I help you home with your bags? And I said, no, I've just left my husband. My bags are packed and I have to keep going. But now I've had to find a job to pay for the car. And he said, well, I work in a restaurant and I know there's an opening as a, as a waitress. And I said, okay, I'll take it. She would become a community and sustainability leader for four decades. And here she'll share what we can do to ensure a happy, healthy Philadelphia. You know, it's a joy to know the butcher, the baker, and the, and the ice cream makers, you know, to know who sews your clothes and know who bakes your bread and brews your beer. Um, these are the foundations for happy community life. All this about Judy Wicks, her Philly story, and how she's strengthening local economies right now on Philly Who. Stay tuned. And yes, there are a couple of curse words in this episode. So Judy Wicks pretty much pioneered the farm-to-table restaurant movement and was using local ingredients at her restaurant as far back as the 1980s. And it's not always mentioned, but Judy also made it a point to pay her employees a living wage well above the minimum. But what's even more impressive about Judy's conscience as a businesswoman is her success. She not only had the courage to stand by these principles, but also proved that they can still be maintained in a competitive, profitable business. And while she didn't enter the food industry until her mid-twenties, these community-driven values date back to her upbringing in a small town in Western PA, where she saw from day one how a small business can impact a community. I would go with my mom to say the butcher shop and witness how the butcher would ask how the steak was last Saturday night and he knew what what uh, farm it came from and um, so I I saw the role of um, that small business owners play in community life uh, the, the owner of the grocery store would have a Christmas party every year and uh, for the whole town so it was important to me I think to uh, be able to witness how local business ownership is kind of the backbone of, of, of a community. Before you left town, did you think that you would become a business owner yourself? No, not at all, because uh, mostly because I was a girl. Um, and, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, uh, it was not really thought of as an occupation for women to go into business. And no one in my family was in business. You know, my father was a lawyer, my mother was an elementary school teacher. Um, and that was, you know, a common job for women would be teaching elementary school or being a nurse or being a secretary. Those were the kinds of 
examples that I saw, mo most of the women in our community were housewives. Um, and um, so I, I really didn't have uh, role models of um, women being in business. I, I never even thought of it. And I was never really interested in, in money. I uh, was more interested in art and enjoying life, I guess. <laughs> I really wasn't career conscious. So in the time, did, once you did graduate high school, what was your plan? Well, when I graduated from high school, I, I went to college. Um, and that was always the plan. My parents both went to college, and I was just expected I would go to college. I never thought of anything different. Um, and uh, I was an English major in college, and, uh, which I figured would happen because I was, had an interest in writing uh, when I was, uh, ever since I was a little kid. And so my dream was to someday be an author, and so I, I became um, an English major in, in school. And then after graduating school, you went to a place that you probably didn't expect you would go, right? That was when you went off to Alaska? Exactly. Now, how did that come to be? Well, uh, it was during the Vietnam War. Um, I got married to my childhood sweetheart uh, as soon as I graduated from college. And um, because it, uh, he lost his draft deferment and not being in college any longer, we had to have a plan to keep from being drafted. Right. Neither of you wanted to take part in the Vietnam War. Correct. correct. We were opposed to the Vietnam War. Yeah. So the Peace Corps or VISTA at that point were draft deferrable. Um, and it, it took a, a lot of time to get into the Peace Corps. It was a lot harder to get into the Peace Corps. Um, so we decided to go into VISTA. So uh, we applied and requested a large eastern city. Um, we were accepted and sent uh, t uh, for training to be in a, an Indian reservation in the West. So while we were in training, they asked for volunteers of a married couple that would be willing to go uh, to an Alaskan uh, Eskimo village. We had originally wanted to go to an eastern city anyway. <laughs> we thought, well, as long as we're going to uh, be in a village, why not try out an Eskimo village? It sounds kind of different. So we volunteered and off we went. Was it an immediate decision? Did you know right away, yes, let's do that? Or I mean, We were in an auditorium of young people our age that were all training to go into, into VISTA. Um, there must have been maybe 100 people in the room. Um, and then they, they asked for volunteers to go to Alaska. And my husband and I just looked at each other, and we kind of nodded our heads and put up our hands. <laughs> <laughs> just like that. Just like that. Wow. So then what was day one like in that village? Well, I can remember um, taking off in a, a little airplane um, from someplace. I guess it was Bethel. We flew to Anchorage and then from Anchorage to Bethel, which is the closest kind of um, city to the Eskimo village. And then uh, in Bethel, we loaded onto a small um, uh, plane that would fly us, you know, to the Eskimo village. And I can remember it was in the summertime and, and the plane had skis. It was on a, a lake. And so I can remember I was in the front seat. And my husband was behind me um, with our luggage and whatnot. And we took off on the lake and we were going as fast as possible, and we were going closer and closer to the shore, but we hadn't um, gone up Taken yet. Taken off, right? Taken off. And so uh, I was getting really scared we were going to crash into, into the shore, and so the pilot put the brakes on and said, well, there's too much weight. So we had to go back to the dock, and he threw out some of his cargo. Uh, luckily, not our suitcases. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> and then we tried it again, and this time it, it worked, and we got up into the air and flew along, and he flew very close to the ground. It was a very flat ground. It was like tundra. I can remember there was just nothing to see for 100 miles or whatever it was. And finally, we saw this little speck of a village on the bank of the river. And we landed on the, on the pontoons. Um, and the whole village came running down to the dock you know, to greet us. Uh, we are the, you know, the new Vista volunteers. And they showed us to our cabin. And I can remember going in. And the first thing I saw was there must have been 40 
empty jars of peanut butter on the shelves on the wall that they, they'd saved, saved the jars for some reason. I thought, oh my God, who could ever eat all this peanut butter? <laughs> and um, then I realized, you know, once the weather turned bad um, or turned cold, that you really crave things that are rich in fat, fatty stuff like peanut butter, because it keeps you warm. Right. Uh, so you wound up eating that much peanut butter. Yes, we were adding jar after jar. And, and the first thing I did was to learn how to bake bread, because you could only buy like stale bread that had come in, you know, the airplane had delivered bread from a, that was a week old or whatever. You know? So I learned how to make bread. And like every meal, we would have um, hot, fresh made bread with slathered with peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say was the most difficult adjustment to make? Well, definitely the the lack of stimulation. I mean, we were in a village of less than 100 people in the middle of nowhere. There was no TVs, no telephones. Um, the, the mail came once a week. Um, so we were cut off from the culture we were used to. And we had just come from college where it was go, 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 and, you know, lots of things to do, parties and, and weekend trips and whatnot. You never stop. Yeah, you never stop. And, um, of course, you know, with lots of media, computers, and um, I guess we didn't have computers back then, come to think of it. <laughs> but we had phones and we had TV um, and radios and whatnot. So, anyway, that, that was the biggest shock. Uh, it was just... Um, there was no stimulation. I, I can remember just uh, sitting there and daydreaming for hours, you know, sort of doing flashbacks of, of um, replays of my life. <laughs> kind of. uh, so that was the hardest thing to get used to. And just to settle in, you know, to a way of life that was very slow paced um, and uh, without a whole lot of variety. That's interesting. If I could just kind of dive into that a little bit. So we do live in a, in a life now, I would say, that's like the college that you described where you just have constant simulations at all times to a point where it's overwhelming. Right. So you joined folks who have lived their whole life in this more sort of slower environment. Right. Would you say that you brought that way of life back with you when you re-entered, I guess, the go, go, go culture? Well, um, I guess we were out there for maybe six months before we had a trip into um, Anchorage or wherever. And I can remember when I first saw a car you know, after being away from cars for so long, it was so scary and it was so noisy. The cities were so noisy, but it didn't take me long to to rev back up again. <laughs> sure, yeah, get right back into it. <laughs> right, exactly. But it was um, it was a, kind of a, sh a shock. Um, you know, a real different pace. Yeah. What would you say was your biggest takeaway from your time? For sure, it was the culture of the Eskimo people, which is not dissimilar from other indigenous uh, tribes a culture of um, sharing and cooperation. And I, I can remember one day when I heard a knock at my door and uh, opened it and there was an Eskimo woman who was beckoning to me and saying, a seal party, seal party, come, come. So I followed her to find that a seal party was um, a tradition when a man caught his first seal in the spring. And usually that is after a very long, hard winter where people are hungry or whatever. That the tradition is that the wife would have a seal party and invite all the other women uh, to their home and they would uh, cut the seal meat up between all the families to, to share uh, the hunt you know, with others. And so they still c continue that tradition uh, today. And then after they've distributed the meat, they also uh, distribute anything that the family has accumulated you know, during the, uh, the year uh, that uh, they don't need for survival. So it might be fabric or buttons or um, you know, and then at the end of the party, they, they throw bubble gum and hard candy up into the air. You know, <laughs> it's kind of a grand finale, and the women, you know, catch it in their skirts. 
Um, so it was a beautiful tradition, but it was symbolic of their way of life, um, which is that you share, um, you know, with each other, and that it was unheard of to accumulate more than your neighbors. Um, you know, that you, you don't hoard. Um, you know, of course, it was just the opposite uh, of our culture, where we measure success by how much stuff you have. And the more you hoard, the more you're admired, where they, they would think that would be abnormal behavior, you know, to be hoarding uh, more than, than the others had. Um, so it was an eye-opener to me because it, it, it showed me that there's a different way of, of, of living. And being there for a year and, and seeing the, that the Eskimos were really the happiest people I've ever met. Um, they're always laughing and telling jokes and smiling. And, um, and I realized that their happiness, of course, was not based on money because they didn't have money uh, or material possessions. Their, their happiness came from a sense of security that community brings. You know, that it wasn't, it's not about belongings, it's about belonging. You know, that they had a strong sense of belonging, belonging to their um, their village, belonging to the natural world. They knew their place in the web of life, you know. So when the time came to come back to this world of individualism and materialism, did you even want to? Well, at the time, I mean, I was, you know, I was 22 years old um, and had a different worldview than I do now at 71. Um, so these lessons that I, um, of, of my observations there didn't really sink in, you know, until for years later. Um, I, I couldn't articulate it in the way I'm, I am right now. Um, I probably wouldn't e even have compared it to our culture. But it was, it was in the back of my mind, and, and I, I saw how it influenced me in later years. Um, but I didn't come back with saying, well, now I know the right way to live. You know, I've been in a society that lived this way and this is how I'm going to live. I mean, it wasn't like that. It was like I, I, I wasn't conscious of the effect on me um, at first. Uh, That's interesting. So you came back and correct me if I'm wrong, but you and your husband talked about starting a business? Yes. We, at first, we we're just looking for jobs. And so we would, we uh, would get the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. That was the, <laughs> the, the paper um, in our hometown and look in the help wanted section for possible jobs. And I thought maybe I wanted to social work because I wanted to do something good for people. I had no idea what social work really was uh, and that you need to have a master's in social work and that it would not have been something I would enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's all I could think of. And my husband wanted to work in, um, in film, um, TV production, that kind of thing. And of course, again, it's very hard. Uh, Entry-level position is, is, wouldn't be that exciting. Right. So the idea of uh, starting a business was kind of a second thought. Actually, it was my idea because when I was little, I used to make things, um, I, I get scraps of wood from um, housing uh, construction sites and paint them. Um, and then I put them in my wagon and take my wagon down to the, to the highway. And I had a little sign that said uh, something like handmade stuff or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Hand-painted st stuff. Stuff. At the time... Uh, well, we looked around uh, our hometown for a place to have a, a, a business. I, and my idea was to start a store uh, because I, th I said, you know, it's really easy to start a store. You just buy something at one price and you sell it for a higher price. So, you know, we could easily do this. And so we started looking for a place to have a store. Uh, and beyond that, well, my concept was I, I wanted to have uh, what would be like a general store because I liked the idea of convening people, you know, the, the image of a general store in the old days was something that um, was very positive in my mind, you know, a place where everybody would come to buy supplies of different sorts, um, and that there would be a mixture, uh, it wouldn't just say, I'll be clothes, or I'll be food, or I'll be 
books or whatever. It would be a general store that had all the, all the things that someone in that particular village would, would want to have. And it sounds like you were aiming for something that was also somewhat social, too. Well, social in that it would gather people, yes. Right, you'd get together right. and see your neighbors. Right, yeah, like the old-time general store, you'd see like photographs or paintings of it, and people would be sitting around a, a pot-belly stove, you know, shooting the shit. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so you'd come in to buy, you know, a bag of flour, and you'd sit down and talk for a while. Uh, so that was what I was envisioning, and, and when we finally did start the store, we, we had a couch and a chair, you know, by the checkout area so that people could actually sit down and, and talk. And then we had a, a bulletin board for community announcements. Um, so, you know, the, the general store concept had a limitation to it, which was that we being at that point, I guess, 23 years old, wanted to um, have our, our customers be our age. So it was a, a store for people under 30. Um, and as um, children of the 60s, we talked about not trusting anyone over 30. So this was going to be a store for people under 30. And quite frankly, that's all we could uh, manage because we could only buy what we wanted to have. Like that was our, our, our knowledge was in what we wanted, what our age group wanted. You know, so we went about uh, buying things for the store that, that we liked, you know, T-shirts and jeans, you know, um, dangly earrings, um, beads, um, Mexican glassware, uh, frisbees, uh, counterculture books, um, records, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, you know, um, Jimi Hendrix, you know. <laughs> then uh, my husband's college roommate put in a little money and joined us in the store. We opened the store with $3,000. And then a, a little bit after we opened the store, his friend who was going to Wharton joined us and I think put in uh, $500 or something, became a partner in the business and, and an advisor, so to speak. And so he was talking about like a, a lost leader, you know, that you sell something popular at a really low price to drive people in and then hopefully they'll buy other things. And so records were our lost leader. We sold records at cost at $2.75 for an album, long playing out an LP. And that would get all the college students at Penn interested in coming into the store. So let's back it up to when I believe it was your business partner who suggested that you open the store in Philadelphia because he oh, was yes. at Wharton. Is that right? Right, exactly. I, I skipped that part. After we looked around Pittsburgh for a location and nothing really spoke to us, we went to visit the friend in, in Philadelphia. And while we were there, we told him about our idea for the store. He said, well, you should start some store here uh, because there's not a, a store like that for the Penn students where he was going to school. So, yes, he suggested that we do the store there. And while we were there visiting him, we went and found a storefront. Oh, right and then so, and there. Right, th right then and there. Wow. <laughs> and um, so we couldn't afford to rent an apartment and a storefront. So we just rented the storefront and lived in the back of the store. And, um, but there wasn't a, a bathroom. So we would go over to uh, the, our friend's house to take showers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we had a toilet. We had a toilet and we had a sink. <laughs> right. Like a small kitchen. Um, we had a, like a toaster oven and a refrigerator. Uh, and a kitchen sink. And then there was a small bathroom that actually was also the dressing room for the store. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> where the toilet was. <laughs> so you couldn't have one customer using the restroom and one customer trying on clothes at exactly. the same time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so it sounds like you approached the idea of up and moving and starting a business in Philadelphia as you did moving to Alaska. Just, yep, okay, makes sense. Is that right? Right, exactly. <laughs> wow. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, and we, we really uh, uh, didn't know much um, except like what what we wanted to buy. And so we bought all those things and uh, we were the same age as the college students and yeah. that's what they wanted to buy. So it was made sense. Now, did the store achieve that sort of community social vibe that you had originally set Absolutely. out for? Absolutely. We had um, 
a red couch, um, you know, uh, next to the checkout uh, counter, and there was almost always at least one person sitting there, if not three or four, you know. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and if there's no one there, our dogs would lie on the couch. <laughs> so there was always uh, chat chatter going on, and, and we had a big uh, bulletin board right next to the couch on the wall across from that next to the door. So we would let people put up signs about a peace demonstration. It was the Vietnam War was still going on. Um, or a babysitting co-op, or a food co-op, or just, you know, whatever the issues were. Um, and, and all these different pieces of paper up here, uh, you know, with people trying to connect with each other, uh, gave us the idea of, uh, of starting a nonprofit publishing company with um, a resource book that we called the Whole City Catalog. So we started that nonprofit. Um, so we had both the for-profit and the nonprofit operating out of the store. Uh, because I, we saw, coming from a small town, everybody already knows every, everybody in town and what's going on. But in a city, it was different. It was so big and there's so, many, so much going on. that, uh, And we were surprised that there was no place that people could uh, look um, to be connected um, with the issues. You know, it had, there was like civil rights, there was peace, um, there was education, there was arts and culture, um, you know, the different chapters. And then within those would be all different groups from grassroots up through city, state, federal government of resources for, in that particular area. So the store was successful. It wasn't too long, though, until you decided it was time to move on, correct? Right. My husband was my boyfriend from um, in fifth grade. That's when we met. <laughs> we were 10 years old. You know, what had been attractive to, to me at the time um, changed, and I, I guess it was really the, my coming into my own, uh, that having grown up in the 50s, we didn't really pay much attention, girls didn't, to careers or whatever. You know, the whole idea was to marry somebody that would be successful because, you know, you're just going to be a housewife. And so I can remember the day when I decided I was going to marry my husband, and that's when we were in fifth grade. And um, the gym teacher, I, I loved to play baseball, and my dad loved to play baseball, and I was the oldest child, and even though I was a girl, he taught me how to play, and I had my own mitt, and he would pitch to me, and I would teach me how to hit, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I loved it. I loved um, softball, and I was, a, I was a nut for the Pittsburgh Pirates, you know, I <laughs> watched all the games and kept their batting averages on, a, uh, on my wall of my bedroom, and I had eight by ten glossy color pictures of all the Pittsburgh Pirates and so on so I was crazy about baseball and so I can remember in fifth grade when the gym teacher said um, well it's a nice day out there let's start start softball practice so I'm like leaping on my chair like ready to go and then he said okay uh, guys down to the field girls you go over there and practice cheerleading somewhere and I just was I couldn't believe it like my mouth was hanging open but I didn't know enough to um, object like to nowadays to be sued for that because you you can't discriminate in that way so I can remember being so despondent and I refused to cheerlead but I, I stood behind the backstop like watching the guys play and I can still remember like hanging on the wire of the backstop you know like watching the guys play and so you know I bought into this because so much in our culture was saying that girls were second class you know um, so I just decided well if I can't play baseball I'm gonna marry the best baseball player so I chose him that day and I can remember going back to my uh, my desk and we had those desks that's gonna flip open and took out my tablet I crossed off Judy Wicks on my tablet and started writing Mrs. Richard Hain, Mrs. Richard Hain, all over my tablet because that's who I decided I would marry. And that is who I married. But it was that fifth grade impulse um, and, and reasons for marrying. And so, but then, you know, when we were married, things changed. Like I, I started realizing that I had abilities, you know, and um, he and um, his friend from college uh, would exclude me from things. Like I'd, I'd ask about, 
you know, how much money was in the bank. And he would say, don't you worry your pretty little head about that. I mean, literally. I mean, like, the, you know, like this is kind of like 1950s talk. Um, and so I started getting upset about that. Like, they, they wouldn't include me. The, the, the two of them would go off and talk business um, and not even tell me what was going on. My husband would just say, here's $1,000, go to New York and buy things. So I did a majority of the buying, but yet I was treated like I was, you know, an employee. So you decided that it was time to move on. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to find out um, whatever happened to that little girl named Judy Wicks who I'd crossed off my tablet. I didn't want to be Richard, Mrs. Richard Hayne anymore. It was a childhood dream that uh, I realized was not really what I wanted. So that business that we've been talking about was the Free People Store. Yes, Free People Store. And after you and Richard split, which we'll talk about in a second, it would become Urban Outfitters. And right. One of the, you know, right. biggest brands in Philadelphia. Right. In the world, really. In the world, yeah. So, <laughs> so how have you felt watching that growth over time? Well, you know, um, I, I really disconnected uh, from it because I, I became so busy with my own work. I mean, I, I, you know, it's kind of amazing. You know, we, we stayed on good terms, and at one point, um, you know, after I got into the restaurant business, my uh, ex-husband uh, even asked me if I wanted to do a restaurant in conjunction with, with a store, which I, I wasn't interested in, in doing. But, um, you know, I never held grudge, uh, a grudge against them or anything like that. I mean, like, we, are, are, we just took different paths. So what was that moment like when you left? Well, um, it was very difficult, first of all, because um, I, I felt very... Um, bad, you know, about breaking up the marriage. And, you know, and no one in my family had been divorced. I thought this was like a terrible thing. I just couldn't stand it any longer. But the, the, the trouble is I, I couldn't articulate it to my husband. Um, you know, this was before women's lib. Um, and, you know, the idea of, um, you know, feminism or women's rights, whatever you want to call it, it, it really wasn't out there. Um, I mean, it was just begin beginning. Uh, I guess the 70s, it, it did, women's lib did start in the 70s, but it, it really wasn't clear to me. I didn't know how to articulate these issues. I just knew that, I, that it made me feel bad, and I felt smothered. I felt confined. I felt uh, that, I, that I needed to be free. Um, and um, so it was hard because I couldn't articulate to him why I was leaving. I just told him I, I just had to go. Um, and so I decided I would start off by visiting my grandparents in Florida. So I was going to uh, drive the car that we owned together, um, which he um, kindly was allowing me to, to use. And I got like a half a block away from the store and went through a red light because uh, I was in such a hurry. I, was, I guess I was so upset. Um, and no one was hurt, but I, got, I, ha I had a collision. Oh, my gosh. And, um, a block so, away. A block away. Wow. So um, there was a man walking down the sidewalk, and he said, oh, may, uh, may I help you, help you home with, with your bags? And I said, no, I've just left my husband. Now my bags are packed, and I have to keep going. But now I have to find a job um, to pay for the car. And he said, well, I work in a restaurant, and I know there's an opening as a, as a waitress. And I said, okay, I'll take it. You know? <laughs> oh and uh, so now when people ask me, how did you get into the restaurant business? I always say, by accident. Yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, man. So... So that was your first foray into the restaurant business. Now, it wasn't in too long until you were managing that restaurant. Is that right? Right. I had never even been a waitress before. I'd been like a cocktail waitress, but I didn't know how like, to open a bottle of wine or anything. So I was terrible. But meanwhile, I, I was still, even though I left the store, I still wanted to work on the whole city catalog. So I was uh, working on that. So I only worked part-time as a waitress to support myself while I was working on the catalog. The place was in disarray, the restaurant, and the owner was living in Boston. He had gone to, uh, to graduate school in Boston. And... He had hired a new manager and everything was falling apart. So um, the cashier actually suggested to the owner, 
you should just fire the manager and make Judy the manager because she ran her own store. And he asked me if I would do that. And I said, well, I would do it for two weeks, um, you know, because I just finished the whole city catalog and sent it to the printer. But after two weeks, I wanted to focus on selling the, selling the, the catalog in the bookstores and whatnot. So he flew down to Philadelphia, fired the manager, hired me, and flew back to Boston. And then all of a sudden, I had been promoted from waitress to general manager. Just like that. Just like that. There was like, you know, 50 employees, a 200-seat restaurant. And it was 130, come to think of it. It was a long time ago. At this point, this was 1974. Um, so anyway, that's a whole other story. But I, I learned the restaurant business um, by fire, you know, <laughs> thrown into the swimming pool. And so 10 years after that, um, I started The White Dog. Right, so you decided that you wanted to have your own restaurant. Actually, what happened is I had a, I became a partner in the business uh, because the owner wasn't around at all. I mean, I ran everything myself and, and, and brought it from a, a $200,000 a year business to a $2 million a year business, and I was highly successful. And so one of my customers actually asked me if I had a piece of the action, and I said, you know, I hadn't thought about that. And he said, well, you should demand that. And so I did. And so I was promised that I would have an ownership stake. Um, and then eventually, um, when the owner finished school and came back, he wanted to run it himself. So he, he, he just forced me out of the business. He said, you know, um, your, your share of nothing is nothing. He had taken all the money out of the restaurant. And anyway, it's a long story, but I all of a sudden didn't have a, have a job and didn't have a business. But in the meantime, I, I, I did have a house. Um, I had uh, joined the, the community group to um, keep the houses from being torn down. And we won the fight. And I was given the opportunity to buy my house, which I, I did. So I decided to start a, um, a restaurant on the first floor of my house. Yeah, so you started the White Dog Cafe, which right. started as a muffin and coffee shop, correct? Exactly, in 1983. And day one, what did you have in mind for the for the store? Did you did you think that it would become <laughs> as big as it became, or did you think that it would you know just stay a coffee shop for a long time? Well, no, I wanted it to be a restaurant, and I wanted to, to beat... Um, my ex-partner uh, down the street. So had you, had, I, you had designs on a, a big Yeah, I, I wanted it to be a full-service restaurant. I just had to start with what I could afford. Um, and um, so I started with muffins and coffee. And then we grew very quickly. I added soup and sandwiches that I had learned to make in the Eskimo Village. Those are the two things I knew how to make. Right. Bread and soup. <laughs> and so uh, that's what we served for lunch was homemade bread with a homemade soup. Um, and then, you know, I got to the point where I could afford to hire a chef. And we, our first kitchen was a charcoal grill in the backyard because we couldn't afford the exhaust um, system up to the house. Right. Um, and so we cooked on the back, um, charcoal grill in the backyard and the, the waiters would go down to the basement and out the back door to pick up the food. Oh and, man. <laughs> <laughs> so we started, you know, we, it was really scrappy. I was, uh, I had, I was married a second time to an architect and he bought the house next door to me, uh, because he was also involved with the community group that saved the buildings from being torn down. So he bought the house next door and we fairly quickly, uh, expanded into the second house. And then he, d he designed an addition on the back, which we, we built, um, and uh, anyway, eventually we got up to uh, having a restaurant with 200 seats. Wow. So a fully fledged restaurant. Now, was it always, quote unquote, sustainable at that point? Or was that a discovery that you made? In terms of the food? Yeah. Um, well, I always wanted to buy from local farms because that's how I was raised in the small town in Pennsylvania. My parents had a big vegetable garden and my mother also would go to the farmer's markets to buy produce and she would uh, preserve things for the winter. Um, she'd make st stewed tomatoes or like our storage room would just be full of glass jars of tomatoes and um, corn. She'd take it off the husks and, and freeze bags of corn and green beans from our garden. She would uh, freeze and 
Um, so, you know, I grew up um, loving fresh local food that was simply prepared by my mother. And my father often would uh, charcoal grill uh, steaks and so on. So I wanted to have a charcoal grill in the restaurant. Um, so we started with, with charcoal grill in the backyard and would, we made shish kebabs because that was my, my mother's, uh, Betty's kebabs, um, uh, using my mother's marinated uh, marinade, uh, recipe and uh, with chunks of beef with, you know, fresh vegetables and so on that we grilled. And we had a, a grilled fish of the day and um, grilled vegetables with hummus for a vegetarian platter and, and my brother, Brother John's chicken, which was my brother's recipe. And, uh, that, and that's how we started. Nowadays, it's more commonplace for farm-to-table type restaurants. But that wasn't the case at this point, correct? No, no. Uh, American food, I wanted to have an American restaurant because I had just spent 10 years in a French restaurant and I was kind of tired of all those heavy sauces, the, you know, Bernays and sauce and uh, so on. And I, I, I just wanted to have, you know, healthy, fresh food. I want to have hot fudge sundaes and root beer floats because those are my favorite desserts. <laughs> and we had those on the menu. So, um... At that point, I would go down to the food distribution center, uh, which is where I went when I was at the French restaurant to buy fresh produce. Um, and we, we, I didn't know farmers that we could deliver to me in the very beginning, but I'd go down to the food distribution center to, to buy um, vegetables and stuff uh, and fish also from down there. And um, so around, uh, right after we opened, I can't remember what year it was, um, there was a uh, Time Magazine cover story about Alice Waters in California. And it, it, she had started the uh, kind of the local food revolution. Um, and she was buying from local farmers in California. And of course, in California, you can buy year-round from local farmers in, in terms of the vegetables, unlike Philadelphia. But um, she really started this trend. You know, if you want, it's not a trend. It was actually a shift, <laughs> you know, the permanent shift. But we kind of caught the wave of that popularity because all of a sudden people were interested in local food, uh, which they hadn't been before. Up until that point, good restaurants were French restaurants or Italian restaurants. Um, you know, there was no such thing as American cuisine other than hamburgers and French fries and milkshakes or, you know, steak and potatoes. That was it. So Alice really popularized, you know, the new American cuisine, you know, California cuisine. Uh, which was just, you know, based on fresh natural products with fresh herbs and, you know, not heavy sauces like the, like the French do. Right. So you, you sold the White Dog Cafe in 2009. Yes. What made it time to move on? Uh, well, um, by 2009, I had developed a lot of in other interests. Um, in buying from local farmers got me interested in local economies. And um, so I, I started uh, several nonprofits, Fair, Fair Food, which was a nonprofit to connect the local farmers with the urban marketplace. And then I started the Sustainable Business Network, Greater Philadelphia, to network between locally owned businesses in all different industries, not just food, but uh, clothing and other local products. Uh, and then I also started an, a national uh, nonprofit called Bali, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. So my attention was really uh, diverted from my own business to building economies. Over time, I started doing more and more public speaking, and I was invited to go to communities all around the country and even in Europe to talk about local economies. And so all this was moving me away from the business. And so I began to realize that I was away so much that I, I didn't have enough information to make sound decisions. Like uh, it used to be that I would hear everybody's side uh, if there was a problem, and then I would determine what the solution was after hearing everybody's opinion because I, I, I had all the facts. But and a problem came up. I can't even remember what it was. And I asked everybody what their opinion was. Everybody had different opinions. And I realized I couldn't make the decision because I didn't know. I wasn't around enough to really understand what the problems were. 
Um, and so that's the moment at which I realized I had to sell. So when you sold, though, you there was a stipulation in the contract of sale that the White Dog Cafe would still locally source yes. its ingredients and foods. Right. Why was that important that that particular restaurant would continue to do that when you were, you know, you had moved on to whole economies? Right. Well, um, first of all, I, I, I really wanted the White Dog to continue to be a model and in, in, in buying from local farmers. So uh, I came up with this idea um, and it was prompted because the copyright or the trademark um, for a White Dog came up for renewal with a federal organization, whatever it's called. So it was a, t a ten year. You have to renew it every ten years. And so when I renewed it, I put the ownership of the of the trademark in my name personally, rather than in the corporate name. Uh, and I wasn't really sure exactly why I was going to do that. I just knew that the name White Dog Cafe um, was so personal to me. You know that it was my. It was kind of like my personal brand in a sense. And I didn't want anyone else to own my my brand. <laughs> uh, and and so then it occurred to me the next year when I decided to sell that I could keep ownership of the name. I could sell the business, but not the name. And so then I consulted with a friend and I said, you know, I want to lease the name to the new owners. And how would I go about that? And he said, that's called licensing. Yeah. That's not leasing, that's a licensing agreement. And you need to find a licensing lawyer, you know, to write this up. So I found a buyer, so I sold the corporation uh, and then uh, had a, a licensing agreement for them to license the name White Dog. And part of that was a social contract that required them that as long as they used the name White Dog Cafe, that they uh, had to buy from local farmers, uh, that, you know, at least the same percentage that we were buying from local farmers, all the meat had to be um, from um, local family farms and not from uh, factory farms. Um, in other words, free-range chickens, free-range eggs, pastured pork, grass-fed beef, and dairy. And that was the thing that was most important to me. And then there were other things as well, um, fair trade, um, chocolate, vanilla, cinnamon, coffee, tea, 100% renewable electricity, uh, all the different sustainable practices that we had developed over the years, I, I put into the contract. He didn't accept everything I wanted, but it was, it, the most important things were in the, in the contract. And it included that they couldn't start other white dogs unless they were within 50 miles of his residence. The oh, so you didn't owner. want this to be a chain? I didn't want it to be a chain. Right. So I wanted to be place-based. Um, now that agreement runs out, you know, after a certain amount of uh, um, licensing fees have been collected by, from from me. Um, so in a sense, it was an arrangement that was good for both parties because for him, he paid less up front because the value of the restaurant is in the name. Because that was the other thing I kept was the ownership of the property. So I, I I'm the landlord. Um, so that's how, in a sense, I was able to afford to retire. Uh, because I, I I had the rental income as the landlord. So you've begun quite a few different business organizations. One of the other ones that I think you alluded to earlier was the Circle of Aunts and Uncles. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Can you talk about that? You've said that that's the opposite of Shark Tank. Right, exactly. What does that mean? Okay. Well, you know, um, in Shark Tanks, um, entrepreneurs uh, compete to try and get investment. Um, and with the Circle of Aunts and Uncles, we try to create more of a a family-like atmosphere, um, and who are really um, there for are entrepreneurs that don't have uh, aunts and uncles and mothers and fathers that have money to loan them. Um, and like when I started The White Dog, I, I got a, a loan from my mother, I got a loan from my uh, grandmother, I got a loan from my father-in-law, and uh, before I was eligible for bank money. Uh, and that's how most entrepreneurs start, family and friends money it's called. Um, so when I realized that there's entrepreneurs that have great ideas, they work hard and so on, but they don't have those family connections, 
not just for the money, but also for the advice and the, the connections with other resources, social capital resources. So um, I started the Aunts and Uncles after I sold uh, the White Dog because I wanted to give back in this way, you know, and I still, you know, ultimately my goals are around building a, a local economy. So I wanted to help the entrepreneurs that are building our local economy in the Philadelphia area. In other words, entrepreneurs that were, that had food enterprises that were uh, buying their supplies from local farmers. So when I loan to an entrepreneur that's buying from a local farmer, it's not only helping him, but it's helping the farm. It's helping the system, like our local system. So, um, that was three years ago. We have 40 aunts and uncles that um, put money into the pot. And then we have uh, 12 entrepreneurs at this point who have borrowed money from us. Uh, we've loaned about $110,000. And um, it's, it's, going, it's going great. And it's, and it's fun. And I, I, I just really love being engaged with these young entrepreneurs, the, the millennials. You know? <laughs> so you mentioned how, though you couldn't articulate it at the time, you rejected the the reality that the patriarchy had prescribed to you back, you know, when you were in your early twenties and your first marriage. And since then, you've you've built businesses, you've started organizations, you've been an example as a businesswoman and as a consumer as well. If you look at, you know, your your home in Philadelphia, that's I believe one hundred percent solar powered. Was it? This home, um, it, uh, yeah. I mean, it's not one hundred percent solar. I have solar on my roof. I use as much solar as I can produce. And then what I do buy from the grid is 100% solar. Right. So today, the society, at least that we live in in Philadelphia, is much more cognizant of, uh, you know, the patriarchy and the biases that are there. But there's obviously a very, very long way to go. Do you have any advice for young women nowadays who have those designs, who have those dreams, who feel like they're being held from them? Well, I guess the most important thing is to believe in yourself, you know, um, when I get an idea, I figure out how to do it. You know, I don't question myself. I just, you know, I just do it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> just do it. <laughs> uh, right. I guess that's Nike or something. Right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, I think a lot of people hold back because they're like afraid that they're not capable or they're not worthy or, you know, whatever. And I think that women don't have enough role models, perhaps, uh, as well. Uh, and and oftentimes girls aren't taught to be assertive and, and go for it uh, in the way that guys are. And um, I just think it's really important to actualize um, our, our ideas, you know, that that's really where uh, meaning and fulfillment come from, is from actualizing uh, your ideas uh, using your own values. Yeah. If you could send a message, whether an email, a text message, tweet, billboard, anything, any sort of message that every Philadelphian would receive and be able to ponder, what would you say? <laughs> I would say let's uh, work cooperatively to build a strong and just local economy um, where we produce our basic needs uh, regionally, uh, in particular food, fuel, and fiber. Um, and if we shift our buying power away from distant corporations to our locally owned businesses that will shift uh, wealth um, and, and power and jobs from corporations to our community. We'll grow community wealth. Um, that Every time we buy from a chain store or even if we buy from a local store that's selling products that are corporate produced, that money is leaving our community. Um, so, you know, to have these local supply chains um, you know, in the aunts and uncles, we we loan to uh, we have loans to the a butcher, a baker, and three ice cream makers. You know, 
and all of them uh, buy from local farmers. Um, and so, you know, the more we can invest um, in local business businesses um, and build these local supply chains, um, uh, the more uh, wealthy our community will be as a whole and um, more opportunities for our young people to start businesses, to find meaningful jobs. Um, and it's also more joyful. Um, you know, it's a joy to know the butcher, the baker, and the, and the ice cream makers, you know, to know who uh, uh, sews your clothes and know who bakes your bread and brews your beer. Um, these are the foundations for happy community life. Um, so if everybody in Philadelphia bought local, what a difference it would make. Judy's book, Good Morning, Beautiful Business, goes way deeper into her story and includes a piece that we only touched upon lightly. White dog, black cat, and maybe even parts of the farm-to-table movement in Philly would probably not have happened if Judy didn't lay down in front of a bulldozer and save her block of Spruce Street from being bulldozed and replaced by a strip mall. For a link to the book or how to find Judy online, you can head to podphillywho.com forward slash Wix. That's W-I-C-K-S. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along on Instagram and Twitter at podphillywho. Philly Who is a Q9 production. Music by Lee Rosevere. Podcast art by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. I'll see you next week. <laughs>